0: Well, it wasn't until I was about twenty that I finally became a Beatles fan. Um, actually, now at this point, I'm I'm pretty much infatuated with them to the point where oh, what's this? Oh, it's a, it's a Beatles shirt I happen to be wearing. What are the odds of that? That's strange. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Ain't no mop top going on here. Yeah, no. No, that's thank you for pointing that out, Dennis. I appreciate the shot of humility. The Beatles are the greatest band of all time, and I say that as probably one of the biggest music snobs you know. They wrote the best songs, they created the best albums, and they either invented or perfected most of what you hear in popular music even today. They're the best, and I love them. I love them, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just the first of many really lame Beatles references, so get right. I just finished reading a book all about the Beatles, and it was fantastic. The music of the Beatles is never far from my mind, but as Angie would, would tell you, yeah, there she is. As Angie would tell you, uh, as I was reading this book, it was pretty much all that I thought about in my spare time was the, the Beatles, which is why I was thinking about them as I was thinking about today's sermon. The two biggest gears in the Beatles machine are John Lennon and Paul McCartney. These young men were incredibly tight uh, growing up together. Um, They shared similar traumas, both lost their mothers at an early age, and they shared identical success being in the Beatles. They are the greatest songwriting duo in pop music history. Generally speaking, people tend to prefer either John or Paul. John was uh, cynical but wounded. Paul was curious and optimistic. I've always been more of a Paul guy myself, even though for a long time it was... That was the uncool thing to say. But no, I'm a Paul guy. Definitely a Paul guy. Um, they were very different men. And over time, their differences, although it led to their success, over time, it also led to, uh, it, it became, it got the best of them, their differences. Beginning in 1967, when the supernova star that was the Beatles began to collapse in on itself, they still made incredible music, between 1967 and and when they folded in 1970. Um, but in, in those eight years, when they recorded, those contrasting personalities made beautiful, powerful, important art. Their dissimilarities brought out the best in each other. And that happens all the time. That That may be true of your marriage to very different people who their differences fit well together. Uh, that happens all over the time. One One quick example, going back to the Beatles, of their contrasting personalities, is in the song, Getting Better. Anybody familiar with this song? Have to admit, it's getting better. It's okay if you're not. It's it's one of their deep cuts. It was never a big hit. But it's a catchy, perky little song about how the rough parts of life are giving way to better things. The chorus is very simple. Have to admit, it's getting better. It's getting better all the time. And Paul wrote that. It's a Paul song, a very optimistic song. And so that chorus is his. But that's where, at, at the end of that line, have to admit it's getting better, getting better all the time. That's where John Lennon adds his small but crucial contribution to the song with the, the little echo line that says, it can't get no worse. Have to admit it's getting better. It's getting better all the time. Optimism looking, looking and that was very 1967. But here's John, can't get no worse. Very, very cynical. It it adds irony, and it keeps the song from being oversaturated in sugary glee. It, it, It grounds the song. It makes the song a little better, a little better all the time. And it came from contrasting personalities working together to make something greater than themselves individually. The Beatles wouldn't have been, I mean, Lennon and McCartney wrote great songs after the Beatles, but nothing like they wrote in the Beatles. And it's because they were so different. And that brings us to our passage today. It's a big passage. In fact, it's an entire chapter. We're going to read it all today. We're going to look at some stuff from the chapter today, but we're gonna we're gonna talk about it over two weeks. Um, it's a two week it's a two parter. And as we're reading it, I want us to notice what our brilliant author Luke is offering up. Um, what he's doing in this chapter. We'll see that Luke is behaving like the Beatles. Contrast and irony to take an already great story of imperfect people and make it even more beautiful and powerful and meaningful and grounded in reality. That's what Luke is going to do in their passage today. Like any good work of art, um, Acts 12 is filled with tragedy and suspense and drama and humor, kind of like the very best Beatle albums had all of those things. We will look at, at four very different people in particular, and through it all, hopefully... We will see how their contrasting lives and, and behavior with different levels of imperfect faithfulness, how these four very different people and the lives that they lead can lead us to a much deeper and more significant understanding of the all-powerful and all-loving sovereignty of our God. So let's read Acts 12, as you see here, um, and I'll pause at different times to make a few comments because I, I can't help but make a few comments. So Here's uh, Acts 12, 1-4. It was about this time, and uh, this is coming out of the, the famine that Agabus had predicted, and the the small-time church in Antioch had sent support to the big-time church in Jerusalem. Sometime between when Barnabas went to get Saul and bring him back to Antioch, and when they sent Barnabas to Jerusalem, sometime in between that is when this happens. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. We'll pause there. If I were to name this section after a Beatles song, it would be Let It Be. Uh, when we find ourselves in time of, of trouble, let it be. James is only the second martyr named in the book of Acts, Stephen being the first. It's interesting how the bar has been raised in Luke's mind when it comes to persecution. Um, and I, I stole this idea from Matt Walsh. He's the 10-minute Bible hour guy who you watched a video of back in November. I stole this from him. I thought it was really good. But Luke used to highlight jail time as the the ultimate sort of um, the the high bar of persecution. But here the bar gets raised. Now he goes right to public execution. That's the state of things for the church. Unjust imprisonment doesn't even, it, it doesn't cut it. That's not, it doesn't show how bad things were for the church. Now it's public execution time. So the stakes of following Jesus are raised much higher. And this isn't some anonymous Christian either. If it was, that would be tragic. I'm sure some of these other people who got imprisoned, I'm sure they were executed as well. But this this isn't just some anonymous. This is James. James, the son of Zebedee. Uh, that's that's Peter's business associate. Uh, John's brother, John, who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in Revelation. This is his brother. Jesus had his 12 disciples, right? He also had his inner three, his three best friends, Peter, James, and John. And James is one of those three very best friends. He's the first apostle to be executed for his devotion to Christ. He had been one of the closest to Christ. Now he's the first apostle to die for his, his discipleship, apostleship. Now we see this as tragic, but I guarantee you, just like Stephen did, James views his martyrdom as a supreme honor because that's how they viewed it. We're, we're all going to die sometime. Might as well die in a manner that brings glory to Jesus. I'm going to talk a lot about James next week. Next week, we're going to focus a lot on the... I'm talking about contrasts and ironies here. Next week, we're going to talk about the contrast between James and Peter. So for now, I'm going to leave Peter, and let's talk a bit about Herod. Oh, Herod. His Beatles song would probably be be Mean Mr. Mustard. Such a mean old man. Um, Or perhaps it would be Please, Please Me. Um... Please, please me, oh yeah, as I please you. Because that's what Herod is doing for the Jews. That That's his goal here. See, there's many Herods in the Bible. More than I can keep track of. So I'm not going to go into the whole history of the Herods. But the Herods have been around for about 100 years by this point. And they were given power. They were They were kings of the place where the Jews lived. Judea, Jerusalem. So Herod's temple was in Jerusalem. But this is not the Herod who met with the Magi and sought to destroy Jesus and committed genocide in Matthew 2. It's not that Herod. That was Herod the Great. You know, real great, right? Sounds like a great guy, all right? That was Herod the Great. And this is also not the Herod who met with Jesus at his trial and kind of bartered back and forth with Pilate. That was Herod Antipas. So it's not that Herod either. This, ladies and gentlemen, is Herod Agrippa. The Jews liked Herod Agrippa best of all the Herods, and... And Agrippa made a point of trying to win their support. One report that I read said that at one of the festivals, he, he read from the book of Deuteronomy to them and started to weep when he got to the passage that says, you must not have any non-Jewish kings over you. And he started to weep because he realized, I'm a non-Jewish king and I'm sorry about that. Which, that may or may not have been a show, but the point of me telling that story is, you know what the response of the Jewish people was? Be not dismayed. You are indeed our brother. That's what they said. Don't worry about it. You're one of us. This Roman king who's in place to keep them under Rome's foot. They hated the Herods, but they didn't mind this guy because he always did things to show that he he liked them. One of the things he did to show that he liked the Jews was this, this grand gesture um, to court their favor. He has James... An innocent man arrested and murdered just to get a thumbs up from Jerusalem. And when he sees how well that works, he becomes like my daughters. When my daughters tell a joke that we laugh at, you hear that joke over and over and over and over, each time a little bit sillier and a little bit bigger. So, hey, you guys, you guys liked when I murdered James? How about next, I'll murder Peter, the leader of these Christians. So he aims for the biggest fish in the church's pond. But he won't kill Peter during festival time because that would be against the law. And isn't that ironic? He's worried about not breaking the law, but he's forgetting about the legal precedent of murdering a prophet of the Most High. That's too complicated. So we'll just go with the easier law to follow of waiting until Monday morning before publicly executing an innocent man. That makes sense, right? No, it doesn't make any sense at all. But I think what we see here is that whatever public support the apostles used to have, and remember... As early as a few chapters ago, it was, it was saying when, when the people dispersed because of Saul's persecution, the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, and they were well-regarded. They were very well-respected by all the people, and so the, the Jewish leadership couldn't do anything to them, but that's beginning to change, and the reason is probably because the church started hanging out with Gentiles now, and that doesn't go over well with Jewish people, Notice who Herod targets. He targets the apostle most responsible for fellowship with the Gentiles, Peter. He's the one who broke that ground, and now he's targeting Peter. The Jews hate that idea, and so James pays the price, and Peter is next. Well, he's supposed to be next. I'm not going to spoil anything about what happens, and but he's supposed to be next. So Herod orders this rotation of four squads of four soldiers to guard peter and they would have four hour shifts every four hours a new four guards would come in and take over and what would happen was there would be one guard chained to peter on this side one guard chained to peter on this side inside of a cell and outside of the cell outside the iron bars the gate of the cell would be two more heavily armed soldiers <laughs> herod is taking no chances here peter isn't he's a peaceful man but here he is chained to all these th- uh, all these soldiers and that makes sense that he would take no chances because this is the same Peter who escaped from prison back in chapter 5. He, he's already shown he can he's slippery enough to get out of, of jail. So Herod takes no chances. That was not going to happen to the great and powerful Herod Agrippa. No way this guy's escaping. He was going to gut this fish in public and make a big flashy show of it in front of everyone in order to win their praises, and nothing was going to stop him. There would be no escaping tonight for you, Peter, no chance right well here's acts 12 5 to 19 so peter was kept in prison but the church was earnestly praying to god for him the night before herod was to bring him to trial peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance suddenly an angel of the lord appeared and a light shone in the cell he struck peter on the side and woke him up quick get up he said and the chains fell off peter's wrists then the angel said to him put on your clothes and sandals and peter did so Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. So Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gates leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then, and only then, finally, Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. The church, just a quick note here, the church was a house church movement. They met in houses, and Mary was wealthy, had a large house, so a large number of Jerusalem Christians met at Mary's house. And Mary, I love the Bible doesn't get enough credit for this. Women are heroes in the Bible. And in ancient literature of the time, that was not the case. But Mary's a hero. And Mary is the mother of John Mark. That's the same Mark who was Peter's protege and wrote the Gospel of Mark. So this is an important family. So when Peter finally, it dawns on, hey, this is really happening. That's the first place he went to. Many people were gathered and praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, It must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Pause there. There is so much irony and character contrast here, it it boggles the mind. Luke is a brilliant, brilliant author, and he, he has brilliant things to say. By the way, this is the story of Peter's escape, and if I had Beatles songs soundtracking Peter's escape, they would go as follows. First, I'm only sleeping, then you won't see me, then help, and then run for your life. So, let's let's follow Peter's thinking a bit. First, he's snoozing away, which is common for this is common even on death row. Often the the report on death row even today is that inmates who, who are to die the next day have incredibly peaceful sleeps. They know that there's no chance fighting against fate. And Peter, he has a clean conscience. He knows he's good with God. He knows where he's going once he's dead. So, he sleeps peacefully, comfortably. Um which is why it's, I'm only sleeping. Death has no power over him. And so he rests comfortably in his God. I, I really think that's a beautiful portrait. He's not panicked. He's not in terror. He's not screaming at the guards, let me out, I'm innocent. He accepts his fate. He knows what happened to James, by the way. He's not, he's not dumb to that. He knows what's going to happen to him. And he sleeps comfortably. He rests in his God. That is, until he's punched by an angel, which is... I think an underappreciated part of this story. An angel punches him, you guys. Like he's sleeping peacefully and he gets whacked in the side of the face by an angel, which is awesome. And then that's where, that's where You Won't See Me gets queued up. He's half awake, suspecting he's having another vivid vision, just like he had two chapters ago on the rooftop in Joppa. That was a huge important vision. He had it three times. He recognized that was a vision. And he suspects the same thing is happening again. This can't be real. Must be a vision. And so Peter watches dreamily as a heavenly figure beckons him to get dressed. He he wasn't naked, but the angel gets him to get dressed for a journey. Put on your cloak. Get your sandals on. You're going far. And he does. He ends up, he doesn't just go to Mary's house. He He flees. We'll talk about that in a second. And so Peter obeys drowsily. He watches as his shackles fall off drowsily. Oh, look what's happening now. Isn't that nice? And the gates... They open on their own, and isn't this, this is wonderful. And the guards don't seem to notice, and so this is very nice. Again, I just walk right out, no big deal. As he sleepwalks through an impossible escape, out of the fortress and into the street, that's where his rescuing angel departs, and that's when it clicks for Peter. After all of that, he still thinks it's, it's a vision, and that's where everything sinks in. You can imagine Peter sort of blinking rapidly and giving his head a shake, Rubbing his eyes a few times and then grappling for a moment with the situation that he finds himself in. he's out he's really he's really out again. It happened again, released from prison miraculously. but the question is what now? What does he do now? He could have fled he would have Herod wouldn't have said anything because Herod doesn't want to ruin his reputation, and the church would have assumed he was dead. He could have just gotten out of there, but he's too faithful for that. So he goes to the home, probably his home church, the home of Mary, mother of John Mark. And here's the help section. Help, I need somebody. Um, not just anybody. Because Peter, Peter is now the most wanted fugitive in Jerusalem. Herod is is going to turn leave no stone unturned to find him. Um, which is why he can't raise a ruckus. I love this scene. This scene is so intimate and it's clearly an eyewitness account because whoever first saw these events tells the story with a sort of love to detail that only an eyewitness could have. And so Peter runs up to the gates of Mary and he doesn't bang and say, let me in, let me in, because that would raise, that would raise neighbors would wake up and, and they could report him. And so very timidly, he knocks on the gate. Let me in, you guys. It's me, Peter. Which brings us to our fourth character of the story. We met James, we talked about Herod, we we talked about Peter. Uh, And now we come to the most hilarious passage in Acts. Since the apostles were accused of being drunk on Pentecost and Peter defended by saying, drunk? Nah, it's way too early for that. That to me is the funniest passage in all of Acts. This is the second funniest. Because Rhoda, bless her heart, is the worst gate opener in the history of humans opening gates. There has never been anyone worse at opening a gate than Rhoda. Her Beatles song is Hello Goodbye. Because before she even says hello, she demonstrates goodbye. She takes off. She doesn't even say hello. The irony is that this locked iron, Peter was just in the situation where a locked iron gate guarded by four soldiers was no match for him. But here he comes to a gate of a household full of people who love him and care about him and have been praying for him. And it's the bigger obstacle. He can't get through that gate. He just keeps knocking eagerly, using a small voice to call for help. Well, Rhoda hears this voice and recognizes it immediately. Her inability to open the gate is due to her abundance of joy at the voice at the other end. I shouldn't be so hard on poor Rhoda. This is Peter, he's back. And so she rushes back to let everyone know to proclaim that he's he has arrived, and that scene to me is very similar to the garden where the stone is rolled away and Mary is the first to find and she hightails it back to tell the disciples. And do they believe her? No, they don't believe Mary. They have significant doubts. Peter takes off, of course, to go check it out. But a similar thing happens here. The same is true for Peter. God has shown up in spectacular fashion and delivered him from certain shame-filled public execution, just like Jesus. Jesus went through with it. Peter's delivered from it, and Jesus would eventually be as well. But it's a very similar scene. And here's the next hilarious piece of irony in the story. Rhoda runs back to a room full of people doing what? What are they doing when she runs back to say Peter's here? Praying for Peter. In fact, the the language of verse 5 tells us that they prayed with hands outstretched, which is this portrait of urgent, desperate pleading for God's intervention. It's all that's on their mind. It's all they can ask for. Please, God, save, deliver Peter. It's very much like James 5. If you're familiar with James 5, the prayer of the elders for those who are sick, urgent, faithful, desperate. It's that kind of prayer offered by faithful people to their faithful sovereign God. And as they were praying this desperate, faithful prayer, here comes Rhoda running into the room telling them that their prayers have been answered. Peter's here. And what's their response? Faithless disbelief. They suggest Rhoda is a few almonds short of a baklava. What are you talking about? And they actually, are you familiar with mansplaining? It's when a woman says something and men immediately jump in and say, no, this is how it really is because we're men and we understand. Men do this all the time to women. It's awful. And this is a case of mans. it's biblical mansplaining. She runs in and says, Peter's here. And all the men in the room jump on her and say, no way. It's probably his guardian angel. Because that makes a whole lot more sense than they offer up bad theology in place of what God's actually doing. There had been an angel, of course, but this is no angel. This is Peter in the flesh. It's the real deal. And so Rhoda persists. She doesn't let these men talk her down. And then finally, someone opens the gate for poor Peter. And when they see it's really him, they all rejoice in this stunned, sort of sudden, exulting joy. It really is him. It re- he's really here. But Peter hasn't lost sight of the bigger picture. They're, they're celebrating and that makes sense. And I'm sure he was smiling, but he raises his hands and say, "No, whoa, whoa, slow, quiet down. If, if even one neighbor wakes up and reports me, then I'm going right back where I was. So we need to be quiet. And in fact, once the authorities find out Peter's gone, where's the first place they're going to go look? Mary's house. So he, he calms them down, quiets them down. He tells them to pass the good news on to James and the other brothers. This is not the James who was just martyred. He knows James is dead. That would be incredibly challenging for them to go tell that James that Peter's free. This is James, actually the brother of Jesus, who by this point has become one of the significant chief figures in the church of Jerusalem. So it's a different James. And Peter says, go tell this James what has happened. The brothers and sisters need to know. And then, finally, Peter embodies, I, I mentioned the four uh, Beatles songs, that, that soundtrack, Peter's Escape, we finally get to the fourth. The fourth song is Run For Your Life, because that's exactly what Peter does. He flees underground, and I don't mean literally goes under the ground, I mean, he, he, he takes off to a place that nobody ever, it's lost to history where he went. Because if Luke knew where he went, he would almost certainly say. But whoever told Luke this story, they didn't even know where Peter went. Peter didn't tell anyone where he was going. He he just took off. We only hear from Peter one more time in Acts, and it's a very minor role in the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. And so this story not only concludes Peter's major role in the narrative of Acts, it also marks the last time Luke records God's sovereign work, specifically among Jewish believers. This is the last story of God's sovereignty at work among the Jews in Acts. After this, the rest of Acts is focused on Paul and his ministry to the Gentiles. But as far as concluding stories about God's faithfulness to the Jewish people are concerned, this is a pretty good one, I think. But it's not over yet. We still have to deal with the end of the story. The Beatles song for the rest of Acts 12, after Peter leaves the scene, has to be The Fool on the Hill. Uh, and that fool is Herod Agrippa, who is at this point fuming over his lost prize. Under Roman rule, the punishment for a guard letting the person that he's in charge of guarding go is that they have to suffer the same fate as the person, as was intended for the person they were guarding. So it's harsh. They are executed for a mistake that's not even their fault. It's how are you supposed to contend with an angel? It's not like it's not like they were conspirators, but from Herod's perspective, this cannot stand. He's already escaped once. He's escaped again, and so he puts them to death. Um, But make no mistake here. There's a very specific reason why Luke includes this brutal detail. It's because he's comparing King Herod to the king of kings, Jesus Christ. King Herod, he saw faithlessness in his servants, and he destroys them mercilessly. Jesus, king of kings, sees imperfect faithfulness in his servants and responds with mercy. Peter's given freedom and salvation. and The church has given her chief apostle back uh, for at least another 20 years. Peter survived after this. Even though none of them, the church or Peter himself, could believe that it was even happening as it was happening. Peter didn't believe it was actually happening. The church couldn't believe that it was actually Peter. They showed imperfect faithfulness, right? But how does their king respond to their imperfect faithfulness? Does he crush them like King Herod crushed his faithless servants? No, he shows them mercy. Herod is an evil, self-serving, ruthless king. All he cares about is his power. Jesus, on the other hand, is a gracious, selfless king who responds not ruthlessly to the pleas of his people, but responds graciously. Herod sheds other people's blood when his glory is threatened. Jesus shed his own blood to demonstrate how glory triumphs over threats. Herod would never do that. But Jesus isn't like other kings. The contrast is very sharp and continues in the finale of chapter 12 when the fool on the hill becomes the food on the hill. Let's read verses 20 to 23. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyra and, Sid- and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king. We need more people named Blastus, by the way. That's a great name. Um, The people from Tyre and Sidon asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. The food on the hill. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem taking with them John, also called Mark. And that's the end of chapter 12. Josephus, who I've mentioned quite a bit in the past couple sermons, Josephus was this Jewish historian, but he didn't write for the Jews. He wrote for the Romans. He was kind of a traitor. And so his perspective on history is considered very neutral. He's considered an authority of the history of the time of, of Judea and, and Roman rule around the time of Jesus. Um. He was very trustworthy. He was an unbiased observer. And he gives an account of the death of Herod Agrippa that is very, very similar to this account, which tells us that it probably happened exactly like Lucas saying. Tyre and Sidon report towns that relied on Herod's place of rule, that being Judea, for their food. That's what it says here. And so they meet in Caesarea to suck up to him, as demonstrated by the adulation they heap on him after his speech. This isn't a man. This is a God. He speaks like a God. He's so great and wonderful. Can we have our food now, please? Um, Josephus tells us that Herod, it mentions royal robes here. Josephus tells us that he wore a robe made of pure silver. And when he put it on in, in the, uh, he gave this speech at dawn, it glittered in the sun and dazzled everyone. Josephus likewise tells us that the crowd flattered Herod, declaring him to be of more than mortal nature, that he was in fact a God among them. Whether they meant it or were just sucking up is inconsequential. What's important to Luke is the result of that sucking up. The more they praised him, the more he accepted their praise. The more they gave him glory, the more he felt he deserved it. And for making himself into a God, the actual God executed divine judgment on him in the agonizing form of a slow, painful death by intestinal worms. Josephus tells us he died five days later. So the immediately here, where it says he immediately got sick with worms and died, that immediately was probably he got sick with worms but it was an agonizing five days before he actually died, is what Josephus tells us. Once again, we have terrible irony. Herod was glorious on the outside, but on the inside, he was a rotten, festering hive of maggots. And I'm not just like he was literally that, but his heart demonstrated that as well. It's a harsh reminder for us to give glory where it belongs, to God himself. He alone is worthy. He alone is the powerful, loving, sovereign king of kings. We deserve no glory, And it only leads to rot when we make ourselves into gods. Remember that. It only leads to rot when we make ourselves into gods. This story is also the reason why after I'm done my sermon, I always hesitate for you to give me any kind of kind words of encouragement because I'm afraid that if if you say nice things to me, I'll get worms and die. So (laughs) just just please be careful. Speaking of which, (laughs) speaking of... Sermons that I'm saying. I know there hasn't been much in this sermon for you to take home and apply to your life. I mentioned this is a two parter. Next week is intended to be an in depth look at what we can get out of this passage, specifically our faithfulness and the sovereignty of God. That's what we're going to look at next week. But I know there's not a lot that I've said that you can just apply to make changes in your life because you probably won't be beheaded by a sword like James was. You probably won't have an angel rescue you in jail, like Peter. You probably won't confuse your fugitive friend for an angel, like Rhoda and the others. And you probably won't wear a shiny shirt and have people call you a god until parasites devour your bowels. That probably won't happen. It might. I'm not saying saying it won't, but it probably won't. But here's what you probably will do. You will probably, at some point, and probably already have, you will probably wrestle with why some people die unfairly, like James, while others are saved, like Peter. You will probably wonder why some enemies are converted. Saul was just as much a persecutor of the church as Herod, more so. He was converted, while others are consumed by their greed. You'll probably wonder why some urgent prayers are answered, while others seem to be ignored. Those are all incredibly fair things for you to be wondering about, and we'll talk about those things next week. We've read Acts 12 And each of these important questions is intentionally being brought up by Luke. This is not a prescriptive passage where Luke isn't saying, here's this, but that happened. Now you go and do the same. He's presenting these things, these issues, these questions, these challenges so that we can wrestle with them and and find where God is at work in the midst of them. And that's what we'll do next week. He doesn't answer these questions. He explores them. And we'll do the same because there's a lot and they deserve time to be examined. The story of Acts 12 is too chock full of drama and suspense and comedy and crucial lessons about our sovereign God to take in just one sitting. So for now, here's what I hope. I hope we can see a sovereign God who acts on behalf of imperfectly faithful people like you and I. A sovereign God who acts on behalf behalf of people who have faith in him. People like the believers at Mary's house, who pray and then fail to believe the answer to those prayers, even as it knocks on the gate. People like Peter, who sleepwalk through their own salvation, who it's happening to them, they're being delivered, and they don't even realize it. They're half asleep to it. That's been true of myself as well. People like Rhoda, who are so wrapped up in rejoicing over God's good work that they forget to do work themselves. They're so busy celebrating what God has done, they forget to do the thing that God is calling, put them in the position to do. Just open the gate. (laughs) Let the poor guy in. God... uh, God is not looking for perfection. He won't find it if he was. God is not looking for perfection. We'll talk more about this next week too. He's looking for faithfulness. Faithfulness within all the drama, all the comedy, all the suspense of life. He is just asking us to be faithful, not perfect. We see this in James. He was very faithful to the point where the sword met his neck. Um, We'll talk more about him next week. His faithfulness led to his beheading and he is a hero for it. Our sovereign God can and does do amazing things with even a mustard seed-sized amount of faithfulness. And so sometimes it's the sword that we get, sometimes it's angels that we get, and sometimes it's being consumed from the inside by parasites as an act of divine judgment that we get. But whatever we experience, God's sovereignty is on display. The contrast between all of these characters is beautiful and it is powerful and it is meaningful. And our call is to be faithful. Faithful if we are in chains and oppressed for our belief. Faithful if we are in prayer for others. Faithful if we are called to selfless works of goodness. And faithfulness in our love for God and for each other. After all, all you need is love. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your faithfulness to us. We recognize how unworthy we are that we like Herod tend to make ourselves into gods that we like Peter sleepwalk through our life of faith that we like Rhoda forget to do the good work that we're called to do father we are not perfect but I thank you that you're not calling perfect people you're calling faithful people and I pray that you would help to make us faithful I thank you for the story of Peter's escape um, James's death the church's prayers Herod's death we thank you for those stories and I pray that we can see a bit of our story in them and that it would compel us to be more faithful. We thank you for these stories and we praise you. We thank you for your love and your presence with us and your faithfulness to us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. I promise I won't talk about the Beatles as much next week. Actually, you know what? I'm not even going to, I don't know. Maybe I will. I'm I'm not, not making that promise. Have a great week. flowing get ready to listen it's a doozy